there, and welcome to the COVID-19 and Food podcast series from the Institute for Global Food Security at Queen's University Belfast. My name's Una Bradley. I'm the comms officer for the Institute. During this series, I'll be talking to some of our top researchers about the effects of the coronavirus on food systems, food integrity, and our relationship with food. But, bit of a disclaimer coming up, we're still recording remotely, so please forgive any technical hitches or less than perfect sound quality. My guest today is Professor Chris Elliott, who founded this institute at Queen's and is an international expert on food integrity. His main research area is the development of innovative techniques to provide early warning of toxin threats across food systems. Protecting against food fraud is also a key interest, and Chris led the independent review of the UK's food system following the horsemeat scandal. A fellow of the Royal Society of Chemistry, the Royal Society of Biology and the Royal Irish Academy, Chris has received numerous awards, including an OBE. So, Chris, thanks so much for joining us today. Hello, Una. Good, good to talk to you again. <laughs> Hello. Uh, things were already, you know, looking pretty tricky for the agri-food sector, even before COVID-19 hit. Uh, we've been grappling with Brexit in this part of the world. Uh, but on a global scale, we also had things like African swine fever and the worst locust plagues for decades, as well as all the usual sort of ongoing environmental challenges. So is there a sense in which the coronavirus has merely exacerbated these issues or do you think it has taken things to a whole new level? Yeah, so I think you, you've summarised things quite nicely. Una. <clears throat> lots of things going on in our really complex world food supply system you know trying to feed 7.6 billion people every day of the week with with that that rise in the world's population predicted to to to, to max out at a close to 10 billion and then we have the backdrop of enormous issues about climate change about sustainability about global pollution and and Grappling with all of those really complex things and then to have the uh, global pandemic to sit on top of that. What, what I say is that has absolutely stressed our food system to the max. There's absolutely no doubt about that. Some areas of the world are coping well. Some areas of the world are coping much, much less well with, with this uh, um, pandemic that, that is uh, engulfing us at the moment. I guess one of the most obvious ways we, we've seen this kind of disruption at work, you know, those of us um, who maybe don't know this sector as well as you do, but we see it in an everyday way in the disruption to supply chain systems. Like, for example, we had a surplus of potatoes and milk uh, there for a while, and then there was a shortage of flour on the other hand. Um, and I read recently that some supermarkets were sourcing meat from Poland while British farmers were forced to stockpile. I, I mean, I know you've hinted there that, that we're in a bit of a crisis, but what do you think might be the medium and long term effects of these kinds of disruption? Yeah, and I think we start to think about the, the disruptions, you know, what has caused those disruptions. Part of it is it's about imbalances in supply and demand you know 
you, you, you need five units of something and somebody can only deliver three, therefore you've got an imbalance, or you produce 10 units and actually the market only wants five units. So we're seeing lots and lots of examples of that. You, you mentioned milk, which is a very good example because there is a massive overproduction of milk in many parts of the world. And that's because consumption has dropped. And you think, why has consumption dropped? And that's because of the closure of cafes, restaurants and bars and so forth. We're not drinking the same number of lattes and cappuccinos and not having the same number of milkshakes and eating the same amount of ice cream. So suddenly the demand drops and you can't suddenly say to a herd of, of dairy cows, stop producing milk. They have to be fed and they have to still be milked. So those stories that we were picking up about, about milk being, being uh, um, you know, put down drains and stuff, it was absolutely true. Mm. Joe, it didn't it didn't actually happen in Northern Ireland because we have a, such a robust supply chain here that we were able to divert some of that milk into things like additional cheese production. On the other side of the coin, and, and some of the things that I'm dealing with on, on a really serious issue is some parts of the world where you've got subsistence farmers whose family depends on selling their crops into global markets, suddenly those markets that have closed to them. And we're dealing with issues of, of, of massive, massive um, um, social and economic damage to lots of subsistence farmers right across the world. So th that that's the kind of thing that's happening. Massive, massive stresses. And so it, it's not a question of suddenly pressing a button to say, let's go back to where we are again. It's going to take a long time. And also in the interim, you know, I, I, I talk with many food companies, local, national and international. And what we're all realizing, things will not go back to the way they are. There has been a massive press on the accelerator now to innovate, change the th things in our global food supply system to make it more robust. Yeah, Chris, um, and you mentioned there, you know, the subsistence farmers in maybe uh, some, you know, poorer countries of the developing world, and and some of them have resorted to what's known as protectionism. Uh, for example, Vietnam and India stopping exports of rice, and Russia and Kazakhstan doing the same for grain. I mean, we, I'm sure we can all understand uh, the impulse to do that. Um, but do you think it's advisable or could it wildly destabilise the markets e even more? It, it's interesting because you, you call that protectionism. I, I would say it's more about protecting people because a, lo a lot of those regions that you talked about, Una, they gain a lot of their, their foreign currency from exporting agriculture and food products. So to suddenly say we're not doing that, can you imagine the economic impact, the, the economic hit on those countries? But, you know, I've looked at India, Vietnam, and the reason they're not exporting those foodstuffs is to protect their own population, to try to make sure, you know, the billion plus people in India can still be fed because they are struggling to import the same amount of food as they used to. And what we're now seeing is some of those uh, export markets are starting to reopen again. And the big driver for that is to try to get back that that foreign currency that, that can can be brought into, into the developing world. Just think it's another sign of these unexpected consequences of COVID. If I tell you, you know, I, I think a stark fact that many, many more people will die because of the stresses to the world's food system than will ever die from COVID-19. 
um, uh, and probably by a factor of somewhere between 10 and 100. Mm, yeah, it's a very sobering statistic, isn't it? And it is interesting, you know, how we frame a lot of these issues and how we frame stories and how the media picks up on certain things. Um, because uh, as you rightly point out, it's it's not always, things aren't always as they first seem. Um, and, and one of those interesting sort of media things, I think, as well, is is the whole food heroes thing. I mean, obviously, that hashtag came into vogue with the lockdown. But in reality, life has been very, very tough for a lot of uh, food workers, especially the migrant workers, and many of whom have found themselves, you know, out of work. So and even in recent days, we've read of a number of outbreaks of COVID-19 at major UK meat plants. So. I know it's a big question and you can't just, you know, solve it right now. But um, what are your ideas for, you know, how food workers could be protected more and given the recognition that they deserve as key workers? Yeah. And I think the area of key workers is something that we have talked a lot about over the last few months. And I hope we continue to talk about them for the foreseeable future. You know, it's people who work in the health services, people who work in the transport industry, people who work in the food industry, generally the, the less well paid people in society and uh, nearly taken for granted in, in many cases. Now, if I concentrate on the food industry, so, you know, in Ireland, in the UK, I tell you, we've got a phenomenal food industry. You know, employees somewhere in the region of four million people. It, biggest industry sector by far. And what has happened to that sector is the retail has had much, much increased demands to make sure they can keep feeding the nation, whereas the food service sector has basically closed down. Now, that impacts many, many people. Those people who have lost their jobs and, and are wondering whether whether they ever, ever will get back into employment in the food sector again. And then there's those people who have been at the uh, at the firefighting in terms of trying to make sure the supermarket shelves are stacked, the deliveries are going out. So, so we, we owe a massive debt to all of those people. And, and, you know, I would say there's four million food heroes in the UK, to be honest with you, not, not to pick out a few people. You also mentioned UNA migrant workers and, uh, you know, again, very much in vogue in the UK because the food industry in the UK is totally reliant on migrant workers, migrant workers to come in and harvest the crops, migrant workers to come and work in the food processing sector, migrant workers who come and work in our cafes and restaurants and so forth. Um, we had all of the discussions about Brexit saying is, well, it's not so important, these people really. Well, I think this has really shown very clearly how important they are because we've had massive issues in the UK about actually harvesting our agricultural crops because there's not enough people. We had our uh, minister for, for DEFRA, George Eustace, saying is he was going to form the new land army. Those people, those people who were on furlough were going to come and pick our, 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 our lettuces and tomatoes. And guess what? The land army never appeared. And why didn't they appear? Because it was too bloody hard work. That's why. <laughs> so we, we, we absolutely have to respect those people who travel from country to country and move around and, and, and you know, really help the, the world's food system operate. The second issue that I'm, I'm really glad that you brought it up is the issue about COVID-19 and meat plants. 
So there's been quite a lot in the media over the last couple of weeks about breakdown in certain meat plants in different countries. And, and uh, really, I, I describe that as, as scare stories. So let me put it into perspective. In the UK, there has been reports of four or five meat plants that have had outbreaks of COVID-19. And when I say outbreaks, that's 10 or more people, okay? Four meat plants. In the UK, currently we have about 6,000 6, meat processing facilities, okay? Which actually shows you the measures that have been put in place by the food industry, by the government are working really, really well, okay? Mm-hmm. And I think another factor is what we're trying to do is to find out why there has been this limited number of of, of um, outbreaks happening, and not just in the UK, but you know they're reported in Germany, France, Italy. We're trying to find why three months into the pandemic it's it's starting to appear now, and it might be just about maybe some of the uh, strict measures have been too you know been relaxed in some places. It might be something about uh, changes in, in how air conditioning systems are working. Nobody really knows the answer to it yet, but maybe just to harp back, all of those people who work in those meat plants generally are migrant workers. What they are doing is they're utmost to, to make sure that they can feed their families back in the countries where, where they come from. And, and we, we have a duty of care as a country to look after them, to protect them. And it's not just about putting food on, on our plates as well. It, there, there's big social uh, aspects to all of this. Absolutely. And, and you know, you mentioned earlier about, um, I mean, about the long term effects affecting the world's poorest people. And uh, and obviously some of those migrant workers would be included in that. Um, but also you've been writing recently about um, the likelihood of, of not just crises in the developing world, but but actual famine. And uh, the World Food Programme has estimated that 265 million people could go hungry this year alone. That's nearly double the figures for last year. Do you, do you still think that famine could be on the horizon and, and it could be as bad as that? Yeah. So thanks for that. And again, I'm really glad that you asked that because some of those statistics that you just read out, I mean, they're, they're, they're horrific. They are shocking. Have you heard any of those on any of the mainstream media? You know, when you turn on the BBC or Sky News, are you hearing that? And the answer is no. You know, we're hearing box pops about people right across the UK and the impact that COVID-19 has had on them. Okay. I, I think personally, really quite poor journalism because some of the big global issues that are going on in the world now because of COVID-19 are in the developing world. And, you know, we've got some of the big UN aid agencies. You've got the World Health Organization, the World Food Program screaming without, I don't think, too many people listening to them is that we are likely to have a, a humanitarian issue of biblical proportions. And that's where I go back is that the the stats for COVID-19, the number of infections, the number of global deaths, it is shocking, but not on a scale in terms of what the shortages of food will do, particularly in sub-Saharan Africa. And, you know, I'm picking up reports day in, day out of massive, massive food shortages in countries in in sub-Saharan Africa where you think actually their infrastructure is pretty good. You know, if I take an example of Nigeria, Nigeria is the most developed country in all of Africa, except for South Africa, a population greater than the UK, 
twice the size of the UK, very industrialised nation, big oil industries can generate quite a lot of money. And now what I'm picking up is massive, massive food shortages in, in areas of Nigeria and, and potential of, of starvation there. So I could not underplay, I could not underestimate the, the, the crisis that, that many, many countries in the world are currently facing. Why do you think that is, Chris? I mean, do you have any ideas yourself why that's not a big media story, why that's not hitting the headlines? Yeah, I guess let, let me be flippant. You know, Bob Geldof is maybe busy doing something else at the moment. You know, because the last time we had some massive issues, it was Bob Geldof, Midgeur, you know, they, they were the people who brought it into the spotlight. Um mm-hmm. And I guess we don't have those champions at the moment. You know, if you think about some of the shortages of, of food in the UK, it's in children in, in underdeprived areas, okay? And mm-hmm. it wasn't a government minister that brought that to the highlight. It was a 22-year-old young guy who plays football for Manchester United. And he's one of my food heroes, I will tell you. Mm-hmm. Yes, absolutely. Um, yeah, it's, it's an interesting point you bring up about what what does make the headlines and 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 doesn't. Um, and another thing you've been drawing attention to a lot on your social media um, account, particularly your Twitter, which for anyone who wants to follow, and I would highly recommend it, it's at QUB Food Prof. Uh, you've drawn attention to a boom in food fraud as a consequence of COVID-19. Why is that happening at this particular time? So thank you for the plug for Twitter. That, that's absolutely <laughs> a drink I owe you, OK, because I'm a big fan of Twitter. And, you know, I think it's a, it is a fantastic uh, way of, of exchanging information about some of these things. So um, in terms of fraud, Food fraud is one of those things that, that I study and have done for a long time. Now, pre-COVID, the amount of money being made in, in fraud in the world's food supply system was estimated to be about 50 billion US dollars, okay? 50 billion dollars. That's more money than it's made in the world's narcotics trade, okay? Just to put things into context. Mm-hmm. And, you know, Massive efforts to try to stamp out that cheating that was going on, but lots of people trying to make money out of out of cheating in the world's food supply system. More and more organised crime getting involved in the world's food system. Drug cartels getting more involved into it. The mafia in Europe. I, I can go on. Now, out of a crisis comes opportunities. And do you know that the word in Chinese for crisis and opportunity is basically the same thing? Ah, nice nice little fact. (laughs) So we, we have a crisis. Some of the opportunities are for those people is to exploit the weaknesses in the world's food supply system. So for instance, the amount of checking inspections, the amount of audits, the amount of testing right across the world it's basically collapsed, okay? Mm-hmm. So I, I describe it as a little bit like the Wild West. Now, the world's food system is the Wild West, and there are those people who are absolutely well-placed to exploit that now. So I pick up lots and lots of reports about cheating that's going on in lots of different parts of the world now. And I think that will start to make its way into supply chains now. It already has. But I think this is a problem that's going to persist 
long after the pandemic is open. Because think about some food crops are, are are harvested and stored away for several years. For instance, do you know uh, rice, once it's harvested, is generally stored for two to three years before it's sold into the marketplace because it, it's a lot, it has to mature and so forth. So this, again, isn't short term. This is going to last for several years. And, and my warning to anybody who will listen, actually, okay, mm-hmm. including yourself. Okay, We're listening. <laughs> okay. My warning is that we have big food scandals coming down the road, okay? Mm-hmm. It could be another horse meat. It could be another Sudan red scare. There, I, what's very difficult to predict what the scandal will be, but I will tell you they are coming. And for those food businesses who are not growing eyes in the back of their head at the moment, checking where their stuff is coming from, making sure that they're not buying stuff that's that's below market price. Because if you do that, you're allowing yourself to enter the world of criminality and you know you will get embroiled in, in some form of scandal. So it's something that I talk to lots of food businesses about and they are very, very aware about it. And the question they ask me is, how do we deal with this? And, and you know, that, that's a subject for, for another podcast on its own. Yes, yes. But it does bring us to, an, uh, you know, neatly to another point about the quality of our food post-COVID and and obviously post-Brexit as well, because this is so topical. We're all talking about, you know, the possible trade deals and whether British standards, um, British and Irish standards will, will go down if we, if the UK accepts certain trade deals. And we've had all this concern about chlorinated chicken and hormone-treated beef. Um, but just yesterday, in fact, we were told a new commission had been set up by the UK government to oversee food standards in any future trade deals. Are you confident? I mean, I presume you think that's a step in the right direction, but are you confident that, you know, this commission will do what it says in the tin? OK, so I think there's two big points that you raised there. One was the link between what we eat and our health. OK, and Again, what is very clear is that the world's food system actually is a major contributor to uh, many of the deaths linked to COVID-19. Mm. It, it is around uh, what I call metabolic health, okay? So those people who suffer from diabetes, those people who were uh, uh, obese, massive, massive risk factor. Yes. Um, there is a very clear correlation between the number of people who have died from COVID-19 and the amount of diabetes in that particular country, okay? So those countries that have really got a much better food system in place have fared much, much better out of, out of COVID-19. Mm-hmm. And then, you know, if you see that the hot spots where we've got the UK and we've got, we've got uh, the USA, you know, with, with, uh, with a very, very high death rates, a lot of that is down to bad diet, something that we have to address. Interestingly, you know, when when Boris Johnson was was getting over his coronavirus, he absolutely said was one of the problems for me was he was overweight, 17 and a half stone, prime minister, and and tells us that he's really going to address this. I just hope that we, including myself, hold him to that because it's a a massive, massive issue. Yes. I, I would say, you know, on a more local front you talked about the the issues about um food standards in the uk in the post brexit era it's something that 
I have to say, concerns me greatly. Um, we have heard from quite a number of government ministers in the UK to say, absolutely not. We are not going to reduce our food standards. And for all of those people is very nice sound bites. But do we trust them? Personally, I don't. OK, because if they really wanted to do that, that would be enshrined in the UK legislation. And they had the chance to do that just a couple of months ago in the Agriculture Bill. And guess what? They refused to in, refused point blank to, to introduce maintaining the UK food standards in the Agriculture Bill. If you ever want to see a red flag, there's the red flag. Now, you also mentioned the, the announcement for, for the Secretary of, of, of Trade, Liz Truss, yesterday about the formation of this commission, the Agriculture Commission, okay? Now, Liz Truss and other government ministers just two months ago absolutely categorically said they were not going to do that, okay? Not going to do it, we don't need it, yet yesterday they announced it. Now, does that go back to actually believing what our politicians say? And why did they decide to, to do a 180 degrees U-turn on that? And the answer lies in the power and the strength of the agriculture and food industry in the UK. And actually, people trusting it. So there was a petition and it was organised by the NFU, the National Farmers Union. And you know, they collected more than one million signatures, okay? In the middle of a global pandemic, there was one million people, more than one million people signed a petition to say, protect our food standards, okay? And that was the biggest single factor that brought about that U-turn with the British government. Now, I was delighted to see the announcement of the commission, but just bear in mind, they still refuse to enshrine our food standards in legislation and the commission will have an advisory role. OK, and I think if we look over the last few months, our government seems to be good at taking some advice and not so good at taking other advice. So that's just my word of caution about that. You mentioned farmers there and the agriculture bill. And while thinking about that sector, should we be backing British and Irish farmers more? Um, you know, I read only yesterday that the Welsh government is is going to launch a buy local campaign um, to help the recovery from, from the pandemic and, and presumably looking forward to post-Brexit as well. Do we need to do something similar across these islands? You can become very emotive, very emotional about this and say, yes, absolutely, we need to look after our farmers. And I think that's right, actually. You know, I think over the last few months, we have pretty been pretty reliant on UK farmers to keep our, 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 our tables full of food. But I think you've got to look beyond that because let, let's take the UK statistics. Currently, we import more than 40% of all of the food we eat and by value, it's nearly 50%, okay? Mm -hmm. And some of the sound bites that were coming out of our pre present government said, actually, we should probably import more food. Let's leave that low, low value manual stuff to other parts of the world. And of course, we'll be cutting edge and we'll be doing all the nice uh, digital stuff and, and financial services. What I think the penny kind of dropped to say is that, what happens when you've got a world crisis on your hands, okay? Then suddenly to import a lot of the food that you think you can buy quite easily on those open markets disappears. So I think in terms of food security, 
national security for the UK. We have got to drive self-sufficiency. Now, we will never be 100% self-sufficient, okay? Because as, as impactful climate change is, we're not going to see bananas growing in, 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 in Durham, okay? <laughs> so I, I've been looking at a lot of the stats going back best part of 100 years about the UK food supply system. And for a long period of time, we had a model of 70-30. 70% self-sufficient, 30% imported. And my, yes. my, my view is, why would we not go back to that? Think about investing in farms, investing in agriculture, investing in smart agriculture, investing in all of the new techniques and technologies that can help um, uh, grow food. And I think that's in the national interest. I think the, the likelihood of fraud greatly reduces, okay? The land army will reappear, I will tell you, because what you can do is you can get young people engaged in smart agriculture, doing things with, with IT in all sorts of different ways, vertical farming, I, I could go on and on and on, but really it's one of our big opportunities post-COVID, it's one of our big opportunities post-Brexit to say that we will do things very, very differently in terms of really rebuilding national food security for the UK. And are you optimistic about that, um, you know, in, in terms of our capacity now to rebuild a safer and more resilient food system? Um, you know, despite everything we've talked about, all the challenges and all the problems um, facing the food industry and the likelihood of famine and fraud and all those things. But do you still remain optimistic or cautiously so, perhaps? What we have at the moment is, and, you know, this, this started six, eight months before the pandemic broke, was there, there's an individual uh, by the name of Henry Dimbleby. And he is a fantastic individual. He's the founder of the Leon uh, restaurant chain. Um, and he is undertaking a, a really important review of the food system of England, okay? Not of the United Kingdom, but of England because yes. of all of the issues of devolved nations. And uh, he will come up with the, the UK or the English food plan. Yeah, now, the national food strategy, is that? Exactly. <laughs> and, and, you know, <clears throat> Uh, having listened to a lot of what Henry has said and spoken to him on a number of occasions, he fills me full of optimism, okay, because I think he is absolutely doing the right thing. What he needs is support, support of government, but also support from the agriculture and food industry. And, you know, if he can get that support, I think I will be very, very optimistic about the, the short, medium and long term future food security right across the UK. Good stuff. So as you say, in every crisis, an opportunity. So plenty of food for thought there. And my thanks to you, Chris, today. And that about wraps it up, I'm afraid, for this podcast. You can listen to it again and to all the episodes in the Food and COVID-19 series on our website. And that's www.qub.ac.uk forward slash IGFS. And please remember also to follow us on Twitter at QUBIGFS. Thanks for listening. Bye.